Second Corinthians chapter one. Second Corinthians chapter one. And beginning in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints which are in the whole of Archaea. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Father, thank you for preserving your word. and We praise you that on this Lord's Day we can have an open Bible. We thank you that you promised the very author himself would open up the truth to us. And so, Lord, for those who are in union with you through your Son, may you give them understanding, may you reaffirm truths that they may already know. Uh, may you change us. May we not be uh, the same as we uh, came this morning. And, Father, for those who have come who have yet to know Christ, they may know about Christ, but they've yet to meet him in a saving way. May you open up uh, their eyes, the eyes of their understanding, their minds, to behold the glorious truths of them being sinners as well as Christ being a willful Savior. And so, Father, thank you. And again, may you have your perfect way and will in every single heart. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned last week, uh, that we're going to spend two weeks uh, on the topic of suffering. Uh, We'll be going back to Romans soon, but I felt it was important, and I won't go over uh, the the long intro that I did last week, but there were three reasons why I felt the topic of suffering was so important for all of us. The first one is this, is I want to encourage you, because every one of you, in some measure, are suffering. Uh, Some of you are in deep, deep wells of affliction in deep suffering. So I want to encourage you. Secondly, I want to help us build a proper theology of suffering, a theology of suffering so that we will suffer well. And thirdly, and that is today, is we want to identify good purposes God has for us in suffering. And those will unfold as we, as we attempt to expound uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses through, uh, 1 through 11. We want to see these good purposes that God has for us in our suffering. You know, last week we did a somewhat thematic approach towards this. Uh, in some topics in the Bible, that's a good thing to do, to start from Genesis and just work your way through the whole of Scripture and see the dominant themes 
as well as the various situation it appears. The fear of God, in particular, is a great uh, topic to study from Genesis to Revelation. Al Martin did a great job on that, and it's worth uh, listening to his sermons, reading his book on where have the God fear has gone. He did that. He took a thematic uh, study of the fear of God. It's the same thing with redemption. Uh, study redemption from Genesis all the way through to the Revelation. You'll get a, a greater understanding as the threads of those themes run throughout the uh, pages of Scripture. It's the same thing uh, with suffering, with suffering. And that's why we did, as I mentioned, that shotgun approach last week and trace suffering and the inevitability of suffering and the sovereignty of God in suffering throughout the whole of Scripture. Today we want to do a rifle approach, a rifled approach. Uh, And we want to see the purposes of God in suffering from the life of the Apostle Paul in the first 11 verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now Paul's second letter to the Corinthians is his most personal. Uh, He is writing to defend his apostolic ministry. Uh, He's been much maligned and questioned by the false apostles. Uh, But the letter also contains much affection. Is that though he was certainly grilled by these, he loved these people. He would tell them that though you love me less, I will love you more and I will be spent for you. So in the midst of the suffering, uh, whether inflicted by the Corinthians or just in general being a Christian, the Apostle Paul shows us a good model of suffering. Second, uh, the second letter of Corinthians also uh, is a wonderful letter uh, that includes the qualities and demands of the gospel minister. Of the gospel minister. One writer has labeled Second Corinthians... As the glory of the ministry. And he in, that, in his writing provides the complementary union of joy and suffering. And that is important for us to remember. Those are not incompatible. In fact that's an inseparable marriage. Joy and suffering in the Christian experience. And as you go through. And let me encourage you to read 2 Corinthians. And read it at one setting. And pay attention to the level of suffering that the Apostle Paul will go through. There are four specific uh, detailed accounts of the intense suffering of the apostle. It's found in chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 11, and chapter 12. And the underlying truth that we can take away just by way of introduction is simply this. Is that to follow Jesus Christ is a call to suffer. To follow and answer the call of discipleship is a call to walk the path our Lord walked. There will be no such thing as a non-suffering Christian. And so we'll take some great understandings of the purpose that God has in suffering for his children from today's message. John Newton said this, and it's so appropriate. Quote, can we wish if it were possible to walk in a path strewn with flowers when his was strewn with thorns? End quote. Well, let's take away, let's let's start walking through this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And the first thing we want to see here in the introduction is the relationship of God uh, with the Christian. With the Christian. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Archaea, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a common greeting. It's a common greeting used by New Testament writers to believers receiving their letters. However, if you look at verse 3, there is a shift, there is a significant difference. Now, of all the letters Paul wrote, this, is a, this would only appear in the letter to the Ephesians as well. And this is what he would say, and you will see the difference quickly. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
in Ephesians, the only other time it appears in his letters, he would say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? Uh, he says, first, that grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, he would say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those two words make all the difference. And and of. In the first one, in fact, what we're seeing here with the word blessed be the God is a Jewish benediction of praise. It was a common uh, exhortation that those uh, who would be the recipients of blessed be God or blessed be God, uh, that they were to be the agents of blessing God, of honoring God. And in this case, it's for two reasons. In the first one is that in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11, when he says blessed be God, he's asking these people or he's directing these people to bless God for the comfort that comes through the gospel. In the Ephesians account, when he would say, blessed be God, the, again, the Jewish benediction of praise, he is telling those people, bless God for the work of redemption in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1. So I, I hope you see the connection here, is that he is exhorting the Corinthians and he exhorting the Ephesians that they would be a people who take the initiative to give God blessings, to honor him for some very things and real that he does in the life of his children. And the first one is that he offers comfort in 2 Corinthians 1, and the second one is redemption in Ephesians chapter 1. But I want to get back briefly to 2 Corinthians 1, 3, where he says uh, the difference between God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That difference is so critical to what will unfold in this, ex, uh, this exposition of comfort. Because in verse 2, where he says, blessed be the God and Father, blessed be, I'm sorry, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he is proclaiming the first and second members of the Trinity. There is a deity proclamation. There is a separate, yet an inside, there is a separate uh, identity between God the Father and God the Son, but it's also connected. So we see then that in verse 2 is Paul proclaiming the deity, the deity of God the Father and God the Son. But then in verse 3, we see the relationship proclaimed. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now you see, begin to see this father-son relationship in Christ, which certainly implies the humanity of the Lord Jesus. And this is so critical because in order for God to be the God of all comfort and the God to be the God of all mercies, then we must be in the same relationship to God as Father as the Lord Jesus is. If we're not in that covenant relationship, if we're not in that relationship that brings us to God through Christ, then He can't be the God and Father of mercies and the God of comfort. Jesus said very clearly that no one can come to me except, the, except through the Father. And so if we're going to understand what Paul was saying about uh, this comfort in being the God and Father of mercies to us, then we need to understand where we are in this relationship. We can say that God, God and the Father and the Lord Jesus, we can proclaim that and we can say, yes, there is a trinity and God is the Father and the Son and the Spirit of God and not be saved. We can acknowledge that. But you cannot enjoy the only source of comfort in the world through God the Father unless there's the bridge, unless there's the reconciliatory sufferings of Christ in your life. 
What I say by that, and I hope you're not confused, is you can't come directly to God, the Father. If you don't have a mediator, if you don't come through the Son, then you can't know God as Father. He is not a universal God, the Father of everyone, certainly by creation, but He's not the universal Father of all people. And religions and, 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 and those who would proclaim the love of God and He loves everybody the same and, and that God, it's, 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 it's all generic and, and you can go to God. No, you cannot. You can only come to Him through the relationship that is, that is fostered through Christ by the gospel. I know that you know that, but you can't run to God as Father unless you include the Lord Jesus and His reconciliatory, or I should say, His propitiatory work. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read, But now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who once were far off were brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now, verse 16 of Ephesians 2. And he might reconcile us, both to God in one body through the cross. There is the reconciliatory suffering or the substitutionary atonement. Thereby killing the hostility. And note the result of that. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so Paul would start out by establishing the father-son relationship and certainly not stated in that text, but supported by the biblical truth of salvation. You must be in a fatherly relationship through Christ if you're going to know his comfort. And so if you're here today and you are not in that, uh, that, um, that relationship, if you come here and your life is crashing all around you and you say, I, I need God, I would be happy. And I know uh, Pastor Jonathan, I know our elders, I know other people here who are articulate with the gospel. They'd be happy to sit down with you and tell you, you know, yes, you do need God, but you need to understand he's not here just to make you feel good and make your life better. Is that you have to go through his son. And when you come through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you come to the God of the universe who became the God-man, who lived and died for you and rose from the dead to justify you and that He is the Lord of lords and King of kings and you don't come to salvation to get Christ to fix your problem and then live as you go. Is the Lord Jesus Christ comes to you and He makes the claims upon your life because He bought you and thus when you come to God for comfort and for mercies, you come through Christ, He becomes your Lord and Savior and you find yourself in a progressive pattern of submission to His authority in every area of your life. That's the only way to know the Father as the God of all mercies. And so then in verse 3 and verse 4 we have the paternal relationship. With us because of Christ. Now, I can't stress this enough. Is that if, if Jesus doesn't come, if he doesn't live the perfect life to fulfill a law we broke and can't keep, and if he doesn't die on a cross to pay the consequences of the broken law, and if he doesn't rise from the dead for our justification, if he doesn't do all of that, there's two things that we can never do. The first one, we could not hear what Mary heard on that glorious resurrection morning. Remember Mary? She's crushed because the Savior, her best of friends, has died. 
What's the very first thing that Jesus says to her besides the wonderful personal nature of Mary? Isn't that so wonderful, the Creator? He says, Mary. But this is what he would say to her. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I was sending to my Father and your Father. Do you notice the first thing he says to her? It's the relationship. It's the paternal relationship. And it comes through him. Nor would we be able to say or experience what God is telling the Corinthians today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. And if you're a Christian today, and you know the new birth because of Jesus Christ, you have a heavenly Father who is your God of all comfort and the God of all mercies. I wonder if the Apostle Paul was thinking of Psalm 103.13 when he said this. As a father shows compassion to his children... We spend a lot of time on this because I believe this is the most important truth a Christian will ever know. Is we need to understand what union with the Godhead means. We need to know that the gospel is Trinitarian. And we need to know that the Christian life is lived Trinitarian. It's our union in the Godhead that provides power, provides the intimacy of relationship. I pray to the God... uh, the God of all mercies and God of all comfort who is my father. And I do that through my elderly brother, my high priest, the son. And through that is through the very power of the spirit of God who intercedes for me. That's why you must be, be steeped in the theology of the Trinity. You must understand the Holy Spirit is not an it. And don't lay aside the father emphasizing the son is make sure that we have an understanding that everything about the Christian experience from new birth to glorification is a Trinitarian work. And so now that we've established that He is the God and Father of all mercies and all comfort to His children, what are some purposes that God has for us in our suffering? What are some purposes we have? Now, I would confess to you that when you are in the deep pain of suffering, it's very difficult to have a clear head to think about purposes. When you are going through some deep, deep waters of affliction, it's far more easier to pray, God deliver me, than God develop me. And so it's extremely important that we understand that God wastes nothing in your life, and that includes your pain. Don't waste your pain. Let pain teach you. Let suffering teach you. I've said this numerous times from this place, and I say it because it's so true. Is that the, the, the two greatest schools that God will teach you lessons about Himself and lessons about you that you can't learn in any other place is the school of suffering and the school of waiting. School of suffering. We'll look at that today. And the school of waiting. What the school of waiting does it is a battle of the wills for you to be willing to say, not your, my timing, but your timing. Not my will, but your will. It's the development of patience in the school of waiting. But let's, let's look at these purposes. Okay, verse 4. We'll work our way through these verses and come up with, uh, with, with these purposes of our suffering. The first one in verse 4. Who comforts us? 
That is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God, uh, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Friends, beloved, we must see that all things in life, and in particular suffering, they are given by God to equip us, to equip us to minister to others. You don't happen, what happens in your life is not just for you. What happens in your life, and in this case here, Paul would make it very clear that you are comforted, not that you would rest as a storage bin of God's uh, comfort, is that you would become a channel of comfort to others. He says, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Why? So that we would rest in his comfort? Not at all. So that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. The word comfort there means to stand beside a person, to encourage them when undergoing severe testing. Whether it's a noun verb or a, for, or, or a verb, this word occurs no less than 10 times in these, these uh, verses 3 through 7. And when Paul says all of our affliction and in any affliction, there's no limitations. God is not bounded, nor is there any restriction he places upon us to receive his comfort. Whatever you're suffering in, God is able. Whether it's mental, whether it's physical, whether it's suffering, whether it's spiritual, whatever, God is not restricted in his ability to comfort you. And here is the application. is because he's not restricted in comforting us, then we are not restricted in comforting others. Now, I understand there's the complexities of medical issues, and I'm not talking about that. Don't ever think that you're inadequate to minister to another suffering Christian. Don't ever think, well, I don't know enough. Knowledge matters. But knowledge with feet on it matters more. And so what we see here then is that when God comforts us, in whatever measure He comforts us, He gives that to us so that we would be able to share that very comfort to others. Because what you're going through right now, and again, some of you are in some deep, deep affliction. Don't lose sight that one of the purposes is, is that when you go through this, is someone else is going to follow you in that very affliction. And someone else is going to need a life preserver of comfort. And that would be you. That would not be the pastoral staff. That would not be the elders. That would not, that would be you. Friends, the first purpose that God has us in suffering is to equip us so that we can comfort others. There's not a single minute of your suffering that is not equipping minute. It is an equipping minute. It's to shape our hearts and to move our wills to minister comfort to hurting believers. Let's move on to verses 5 and 7. Here's a second purpose in our suffering. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. The second purpose in our suffering is that we indeed, as Paul would emphasize with the word share over and over and over, is that we would share in Christ's sufferings and comfort with his people. Friends, we don't spiritually grow in isolation. We don't serve in isolation. We don't suffer in isolation. 
Isolated Christians are going to be miserable and defeated Christians. We grow, we serve, we suffer, we share in the abundance of Christ's sufferings and his comforts. When Paul would say in this section, the pronoun we, it often appears in his letters, there's interchangeable application. A lot of times he's still talking about himself. Other times there's a collective application, as you see it in the Corinthians. But what is Paul doing in verses 5 through 7? He's identifying with Christ in his sufferings while acknowledging the Corinthian believers as well in their sufferings. There's this interaction that's occurring. He would say this. He says, you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Now we need to identify this suffering because there's two types of suffering that are occurring in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. This is not the suffering for Christ. Paul's going to say that when he says we the spirit of life itself. And he's going to tell about the, uh, and not in specifics, but he's going to identify the sufferings he had in Asia. That was suffering for Christ. This is the suffering that is simply the, the suffering that's associated with being a Christian. With being a Christian. He's identifying with the Corinthians, with Christ, in what it means to be a Christian. And what is the suffering just for being a Christian? I'm not talking about persecution yet. Paul would experience that later on. He doesn't say that in this text. Charles Hodge had a good insight on this. He said, uh, on the suffering Paul mentions, quote, it is suffering Christ's people are called to endure in virtue of their union with him and to be like him. The greatest battles you will face in the Christian life. And I say that because it's my greatest battle too. It is the battle to get yourself out of the way. It is the battle for self-discipline. It is the battle for self-denial. It is the battle for self-control. Those are the sufferings of a Christian. When he, when he says here, like Hodge says, in our union with him and to be like him, how did Jesus view all of his sufferings? Others-centered. How do you view your sufferings as a Christian? Others-centered or me-centered? Just get me out of this, Lord. Make the pain go away, Lord. Change the circumstance, Lord. Change the situation, Lord. Remove this person from my life, Lord. And what did the apostle say in, in, in chapter 12 of this chapter? When he asked the Lord to take the thorn of the flesh out of him, whatever it was, he pleaded and he pleaded. Can you imagine the apostle Paul saying, Lord, if you remove this, I'll serve you better. If you just take this, change this situation, I'll change you better. And the Lord says to him, Paul, stop asking. Stop asking. I'm not going to take it away. Paul models for us in verses 5 through 7 in this willingness to share. Now remember, these Corinthians, some of these Corinthians really, really took him to task. And so he's writing, in this section, there is affection here. He says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Now, Paul suffered for Christ in getting the gospel to the Corinthians. That's what we see certainly in, uh, um, in verse 5. But he would also say, because you have, uh, you have responded, and that's what verse 7 means, our hope for you is unshaken. He had confidence that there was genuine believers there. And he says, because you're a genuine believer, you're going to suffer the commonalities of a Christian just like we do. Paul models for us transparency in the Christian life. 
He models for us an authentic Christian life. He identified with other Christians in their suffering simply for being a Christian. And notice there wasn't a, a, a hierarchy. I mean, here's the great, the great apostle, the greatest Christian ever. And yet he was willing to say, hey, I suffer for being a Christian, and you do too. Well, let's suffer together. And by the way, as we suffer together, we also will know Christ's comfort together, because that's exactly what he says. As you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. And his comfort wasn't self-generated. His comfort, as we've already seen, comes from the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Christian, are you in relationship with other Christians that defines you, this defines you? Are you sharing the sufferings of being a Christian with another Christian? Are you carrying the burdens of other Christians? Or are you a burden to other Christians? There was an elderly Scottish lady. She was a godly woman. She was in the twilight of her life, and she, she, she suffered. She suffered a lot. And she needed care, a lot of care. Her two daughters, uh, obligated, they took the job as caretakers for their mother. Both the daughters were professing Christians. The lady said, the mom said of them, I have two daughters who take turns caring for me, and in a Scottish way, said, cleaning my wee house. Jean comes, and she leaves everything so clean and shiny, but she makes me feel like I'm an awful burden. She makes me feel like an awful burden, like she just can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to get this service over with. She said, but my other daughter, Mary, she comes, no matter how gloomy my day is or how low in spirit and my body I'm feeling, She makes not only my wee house sparkle, but she makes me sparkle. She makes me feel cheery and loved. This is a good lesson for us. The Apostle Paul shares in the Christ's sufferings and comfort with these Corinthians, even perhaps those who did him wrong. And the Lord Jesus Christ does the very same thing to us as the God of all comfort and the God of great mercies. Friends, our credibility as Christ's people is challenged if we do not enter and share in the sufferings of other believers. Our words of love, our invitations, whenever you need, just give me a call, ring shallow and very hollow unless the heart moves our wills to action. This has been very personal with us, and I promise this is the only personal illustration I'll use of what happened to us in the last month. We have been the recipients of so much love and action And we've seen the difference. It's far easier for someone just to say, hey, praying for you. And I got that. And that's so important. But how about when someone says, I'll pray for you. And what can I do to help you? And they show up at your house and say, tell me something to do. To share in the sufferings of Christ, like Paul says here, is one of the purposes of our sufferings. So that you can have those long conversations with someone who's entering into your suffering because they suffer too. And they know what it's like as a Christian. 
Christian, if, you are on, if you're in isolation and all, the only interaction you're having with Christians is from 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock till, say, 12 o'clock, then you are not in a good place. You can't enter into suffering if you don't know what they are. And you can't share Christ's comfort if you're not experiencing Christ's comfort and sharing it because if you're, enjoy, if you're getting Christ's comfort and you're not sharing it, I would challenge you that you're going to be chastened by the Lord. So what does Paul do in the first few verses here? He gives us two purposes for, for suffering. Number one is that we would be equipped to minister comfort to others. Secondly, that we would be moved to share in Christ's sufferings as a Christian. I struggle with self-discipline. I struggle with self-control. I struggle with selfishness, and so do you. How encouraging to get with fellow, fellow Christians and share those very struggles together. Instead of just getting together and talk about how God's using us and what God's doing, maybe we should get together and talk about how we're struggling and how we're suffering as Christians. That's what Paul did. Now look at verse 8 and 9. Here's a third purpose in our suffering. It's to recognize the depths a believer's suffering may plunge. It's to recognize the depths a believer's suffering may plunge. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, For we not want you to be unaware... Unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Don't you just feel like walking up to Paul and say, you need a hug. You need a hug. He says, and, and, and notice his transparency once again. Paul says, we do not want you to be unaware. That means we don't want you lacking knowledge. We don't want you to lack information. We don't want you not to know how we are. He would use that phrase six times in his epistles, showing how often he shared the personal painful side of following Christ. Now, this isn't him crying out in a self-pity party. This isn't him getting with a, with a bunch of Christians and complaining about what he's going through. That's not what he's doing. That's not encouraging. Is Paul was saying, listen, we want you to know what we are going through. Why? Because when they go through those very things, they're going to say, remember Paul? Remember what he went through? He would do this oftentimes. To the Philippians, he would say in prison, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul was able to take the suffering, and he saw the purpose in the pain and he was willing to share the depths of his pain with other Christians so that when they get into depths, they think, has God abandoned me? Where's God in all this? This is so critical of, of, of younger Christians. Is that we have responsibility to come against younger Christians because a younger Christian, I, I, I chuckle some, sometimes, you see young Christians, they get so full of zeal and they're in that honeymoon phase and they're so excited about the things of the Lord and deep down inside, you who've been walking with Christ a long time, you know it's that they're on the clock. The honeymoon phase is going to end and they're going to say, what's going on? What do you mean? War? Doubt? Fear? That's where you come alongside in their sufferings, like Paul with the Corinthians. And you recognize that there are depths, there are depths of suffering that a believer may go. Now when Paul says here, you know, that um, 
that he was basically despairing of life itself, it really means that there was no way out. It literally translates, there was no way out. There was no, there was no escape route. He couldn't get away. He was caged in to the sovereignty of God. And, and this was for good purposes. And part of the good purpose was so that he could come alongside those who are also caged in by the sovereignty of God. And that he could share the comfort that he got in Christ. Now, as I mentioned last week, please don't, don't think God is being cruel in your suffering. It's one of the highest displays of his love. That'll lead us to the fourth purpose, and we're almost there. When you see about this depth that Paul's in, he would say that. And when you think that you're in the deep depths so bad of your suffering, and that no one understands, and you're ready to pull away and recluse in your own little world, I want you to remember Jesus in Gethsemane. And I want you to remember the agonies of the Savior even throughout his life. And I want you to remember that God has called you to the suffering life. He has called you to a life of joy and affliction. This reminds us what Paul's going through. This reminds us that it's God who determines the dial on the heat setting in your fiery furnace. It's God who sets the temperature. It also will remind us, it will remind us that when you come along someone that's suffering, be very slow to say, I know how you feel. Because you may not. You may think you do. It's a, that's why the importance of life on life. And that's why when Pastor Jonathan read the covenant. I want you, if you're a member of Quinesa Baptist Church, you need to read that covenant because that's what you agreed to do. And if you read that, that means you need to be involved in people's lives. Not just on the surface level of an hour on a Sunday. If you read that covenant, it requires your whole life in with God's people. And we're going to stress that more and more. We're going to stress, you know, as, as, and we'll share some of that next Sunday night. And if you remember, like he said, I, I, I hope you'll come. We want to share vision. We want to share, uh, we want to up the ante, so to speak, what it means to be a member of Quinesa Baptist Church. It's not just you come on a Sunday and you're in. That's not what it is. If we're going to be the church, then we have to understand that we suffer. And we suffer so that we'll help other sufferers. And that we suffer so that we can share Christ's comfort with one another. And that we suffer so that we will know the different depths that God will take us so that we can minister to one another in those depths. Have you ever heard these words? Or maybe you've given it to, um, to someone as well-intended advice. God will never give you more than you can handle. I tell you, it sounds really good. And it feels really good. And it is so wrong. It's not true. He will give you more than you can handle. He will overwhelm you with more than you can handle. As Paul said, in the spirit of life, there's no way out. You're going to find yourself in circumstances, in situations, in trials that you cannot change, you cannot control. All you can do is submit. And that's exactly where he wants you. Which leads to the fourth purpose. Look at verse 9 and 10. The fourth purpose in our suffering is to empty ourselves of self-sufficiency. Of self-sufficiency. If our first enemy in the spiritual life is our selfish selves and lack of self-discipline, lack of self-control, lack of self-sacrifice, then the second enemy associated with self is next, and that is we rely too much on ourselves. 
our own understanding, our own reasoning, our own gifts, our own knowledge, our own everything, except what Paul says is that's not the way of grace. Look at verse 9 and 10. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Don't lose the force of that verse. Make us. God loves us so much is He's going to make us become dependent. If you're His child, you are going to be made dependent. He is going to put you in those fiery furnaces. He's going to put you in those, the plunges of suffering and affliction to purge you from self-sufficiency. To where you really can get to the point where you can say with all sincerity, without Jesus, I can do nothing. That first doesn't mean just service. Nothing means nothing. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to know that. Nothing means nothing, and that means everything. Your whole life, you can't do a single second of life without Christ. And Paul says the purpose of your suffering is to empty yourself of self-sufficiency. Isn't that what chapter 12 tells us? The thorn in the flesh? After, after Paul does not get it removed, the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul says, I submit. Therefore, I will boast all the more in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now get a hold of this. I am content. That's a hard verse to read. It's even a harder verse to live. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, that I am strong. Are you? Are you content in whatever is happening in your life right now? Including the painful parts? Finally, and here's the last one. Verse 11. So God's purpose is in suffering. One, make sure that you're in that relationship with the Father through the Son so that you can know this and you can benefit from your suffering. Because if you're not in that relationship, you can make no sense of your suffering whatsoever. The purpose in suffering is to equip us to minister comfort to others. Secondly, share in Christ's suffering and comfort with his people, which really defines what the church is. Recognize the depths of believers' suffering may plunge. Empty ourselves of all self-sufficiency. And finally, to promote fellowship through intercessory prayer. Look at verse 11. You also must help me or help us by prayer. Paul relied on the prayers of God's people. Philippians 1, verse 18 through 19, he says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Colossians 4, at the same time, pray for us. There's other examples. Paul relied upon the intercessory prayer for for himself by the church. One of the most encouraging things, and I promise I wouldn't do this, but I am again, is, is during this month since the stroke, we have been overwhelmed with a number of people that have personally reached out and told us, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. When the early church was suffering, what did they do? They gathered for prayer. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his, his fearful, suffering disciples, timid disciples, to wait for the promise of the Father. Where did they go? To a prayer meeting. I don't believe there's a better place to weep with those who weep And to rejoice with those who rejoice. Then in a time of prayer. Sharing the joint sufferings that we encounter. As being Christ's people. And really. When we look at all these five purposes. In our suffering individually. And we embrace those. It equips us to be the church. Because the world out there is suffering. You know what they need to see? They need to see the way to suffer well. And that's through the church. And so let me encourage you, Christian, don't suffer in isolation. 
And again, if you're just on the fringe of body life in Quinesia, you're shortchanging your Christian life. And not only that, you hinder the church because we need you. I need you. We need to suffer together and we need to comfort together. And that's what will show the world the reality of who Christ truly is. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the great truths of your word. And Lord, I confess that we often look more for deliverance from suffering than development through suffering. And we don't like pain. We don't like to go through affliction. And we find ourselves more complaining than praising. And we try to, to do the impossible, change people, change circumstances, change situations. May you please help us, Father, to see that your love to make us like Jesus works through the school of suffering. And that we would learn how to be better ministers of Christ's comfort through our suffering. And may we share in the body. May we be so open to one another that when someone says, Hey, how you doing? Now let's get together for an hour. I need to share my heart. And Father, help us to recognize that there are depths of suffering your people go through that need good ministers of comfort to them. And may you truly empty us of our self-sufficiency. Oh, Father, forgive us when we try to do your business in the strength of flesh. And it's so evident by our prayerlessness. And Father, please, promote that fellowship of prayer. May you move that throughout our church so we just can't wait to be together, to unburden our hearts, to weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice as we gather to pray to seek your face. In Christ's name, amen.